Oh, so this week, it was my birthday, and for my birthday this week, I said, Jesus, you know what I want for my birthday? I want snow. You are welcome. All right, so he gave me what I wanted for my birthday, a lovely snow day, and some of us have made it on that snow day, which is fantastic. So we're getting right to business today because we got some tough stuff to deal with in the epistle of John, the first epistle. Uh, but as we do that, I want to remind you we have an app with notes, with blanks that you can follow along with, have all the verses that are in there. That'll be great to do. And with that, I want to settle our minds and our hearts, pray for just a minute here, and jump right into the topics of the day. So let's do it. Jesus. Thank you uh, for hard stuff, you know, and, and as we dive into this today, it's, it's hard from a modern perspective, it's hard maybe even at times from kind of an intellectual understanding, the symbolism and the ideas perspective, but I believe at the core there is simplicity in what it is you're telling us. Uh, it's not easy to do. It's simple to, to kind of grab in the end at the, at the kind of the finale of all things, but, but it's a tough thing to live out. And so help us to do this. Help us to, to find our life in you, to be mobilized by the life we see in you when we read your story and by the life you've given us because of what you've done for us. And so, man, we are looking to you today to do some powerful things in us. And so, Jesus, we ask for grace. We ask for tenacity. We ask for long-suffering. We ask for your love and joy and peace and patience, these fruits of your spirit that we be thrust through our lives so that we might be a blessing to the world around us. We thank you for the opportunity and for the joy of knowing you. And so we look to you today in your good name. Amen. All right. So uh, recently I had an aha moment. And when I say an aha moment, I don't mean the Norwegian 80s sync band, though they were super cool. Take on me, still a classic song. I love it. No, I had this aha, epiphany, eureka, oh, that kind of aha moment where I realize that some of our Christian experience is driven by Christian expression that is not always about biblical reflection, but more about cliche. You're like, wow, that was deep. All right, so, um, but, but here's what I mean, for example. We, we say things within kind of the climate of Christianity that sound really good, but maybe we haven't reflected on if God has in fact said these things. So some people will say, hey, God will not give you more than you can handle. And I go, that's a great statement, but it's not a Bible statement. And if you ask the Apostle Paul, he'd say, no, there was times I couldn't handle it, right? So he says that like in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He goes, I was despairing to the point of death more than I can handle, right? So there's that kind of example. Or people say, you're never safer than when you're in the will of God. I'm like, have you read the Bible? There are people that are imprisoned, dismembered, killed, mistreated, and they're firmly in the will of God, but they aren't safe. They're faithful, but they're not necessarily safe. One that I've heard that it's going to be a part of what I'm talking about today, I've heard people say, uh, for the Christian, uh, this planet, the earth, is the only hell they're ever going to experience. And I've also heard Christians say, in this life, God isn't concerned with your happiness. He really is just focused on your holiness. Now, I take those last two as kind of illustrative of today because it begs the question, when I think about the mission of Jesus, what it is he states he's come to do, should I look at this and say, so what he wants in my life is an unhappy but holy existence in a hellscape, or did Jesus say, I've come to give you abundant, transforming, joy-filled life? Which did he promote and which did he push? See, in the cliches, I would think it is unhappy but holy hellscape living until I die and then it's good. 
But when I read through the Gospels of Jesus, I actually see that he's emphasizing this other idea of he wants us to have profound joy, incredible life experience, abundance in him, because that is his mission to accomplish. Now, I know part of the problem here is that what we consider those things to be and what he considers those things to be may be different. But I don't want us to lose the magnitude of what he's driving at because what we noted last week when we started into John's first epistle that I'm considering more of a blog post than a letter, uh, we learn that when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is life and Jesus is joy. Like he starts that off right at the beginning, right? He is true life. He is true joy. And John is writing so we can experience the joy that he experiences because he knows life in Jesus. All of this is coupled. And it doesn't matter if I think a certain thing or my experience doesn't match what Jesus has said. I always want to take us back to what Jesus says. So we are always striving to experience what he says is possible in him according to his standard and his measure. Now, when I think about this, I think about a spattering of passages, right? So John 10.10, 10, the enemies come to kill, steal, and to destroy. He wants to make your life terrible. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life abundant. This is why John writes about life so often. He's just quoting Jesus repeatedly. Or in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says something super crazy. He says, you know what? If you give up things in this life for me, he says, I will give you a hundredfold in this life those things back and eternal life to boot so he says in this life i'll give you a hundredfold in this life like he says that in matthew chapter 5 verses 3 to 12 we see the section called the beatitudes and he says blessed is this person and blessed is that person and blessed if you do these things and blessed if you experience those things and that word blessed means happy like he says this. Now, part of the problem, again, is we look at those things and we go, oh, but you say happy when you mourn, happy when you're meek, happy when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, happy when you're persecuted. So we start going, ah, it doesn't sound happy. And Jesus is like, I know, but if you pursue me and you pursue that, I will give you abundance and joy. You just got to take the risk of living my design and I will do this in you. We see in John chapter 15, he's like, I've come to give you a joy that the world can't take from you. And in John 17, he says, oh man, and this joy is connected to being connected to my father and connected to me in oneness. So I'm a big fan of feeling the squeeze, right? Looking at those things and then kind of looking at my life and say, how do I migrate closer to those things? But see, that's a part of the challenge, right? We're human we're frail, we're fallible, and our experiences don't always match up to what Jesus claims as possible, and yet I never want to say, so let's drag Jesus' claims down. Let's drag down what is possible, like to make it fit my reality. No, instead I want to say, man, how do I then conform my reality to be more closely aligned with his, his promises and his offerings to us? See, when I analyze all of this in my own life, um, I, I, I find that part of the challenge is I'm misguided in my approach. And I'm misguided at two levels. One is I'm kind of misguided religiously, right? So what I start to think is I, 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 I get more focused on the rule keeping than I do on the creator of the rules. So if I'm just doing the moral right stuff, but I lose sight of the God who's called me to these things, I'm, I'm just going to be doing rules. And that can be kind of 
soul emptying at times because it's just check boxes and it's not connectivity to the living God. And so his life isn't imparted into my life as I do those things. I'm just doing those things. That's why the Pharisees, for example, were awesome rule keepers and had no sense of God in their lives. In the name of God, they kept the rules, but they didn't have a life with God. And so that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is sometimes when it comes to joy, at least, uh, I tend to say joy is predicated on the right conditions. And the only way I can have true joy is if I can control the conditions of life in such a way that they then fuel my sense of joy and happiness. And so then I want the right conditions, and so I try to get the right politicians and the right policies and the right economics and the right security and the right safety, and all of that's going to give me then this joy that I want. But but when I read the New Testament, I see that, that God's like, no, I'm trying to give you a joy that transcends the circumstances, that isn't robbed by the circumstances. I see this in Paul in Philippians 4, where he's like, man, I have learned the secret to contentment with nothing or with everything. It doesn't change the barometer in my heart of joy because my life is hidden in God. I have this sense of life flow from God, and that drives then my joy in this life. Like, I look at all of this, and I go, this is what Jesus wants for us. Thus, Jesus is life, and Jesus is joy. And I believe this concept is what's motivating John to write. But I also believe what is true to John is what is true to us. He feels the pinch and the struggle of what is true and then what he experiences and then how he falters and we falter. And he's trying to speak to all of that in his letter. But he wants to draw us back to these truths that can move us and mobilize us so our lives will be enriched in Christ. And so, writing his blog, looking at our points today, it starts with this reminder. And the reminder is number one in your notes. Life in Jesus is to be walked in the light versus in the dark. Like he's trying to help us to experience this thing. And so he's like, remember, you are to walk in the light, not in the dark. Verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, this is the message that we heard from Jesus. And now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him. So this is why this whole series is kind of black and white. You're going to see in John that he repeatedly use, uses rhetoric. He uses hyperbole. Now here, it's pretty solid hyperbole. God is light. Everything else is dark in comparison to them. And so he makes a strong statement, but he's going to continue to use rhetoric throughout. And next week, we'll deal with this more to understand the letter. But as he opens it, it's very clear that he's driving toward a concept. And it's about God. He says, here's what we know about God. He guides he empowers. He is the source of life itself. He brings courage and insight. When we say God is light, it's meant to tell us that we can have confidence in God. He will never mislead us. He will never misguide us. He cannot do so. It's outside of his character to do such things. So no part of him is capable of this. Therefore, however he says to live, whichever way he guides us in that life, the things that he instructs that will lead us into great joy and abundant life, whatever that map is, if we do that, even though it sounds counterintuitive, super strange, quite sacrificial, but if we do it, he's like, God's going to lead you to the right place. He's going to take you into abundant life and great, unintractable joy. But it's if we believe his way is the way. And then we choose to live in that way of life and love, 
not from our own grit, which is what I tend to do sometimes, but from the power of his flowing grace in our lives because our proximity is there with him, man, then we're going to experience those things. Now, I've said all of this, and I'll tell you what makes this hard. Um, that sounds all very ethereal. It sounds all very mystical. It sounds very poetic and very beautiful and even a little bit mobilizing. But when you try to figure out the applications of that, it gets a little tougher. If somebody's like, well, then Matt, just tell me what to do to get that. I'm like, it's tough to tell you just what to do because we're talking about a relationship. We're not just talking about a creed or rules or checkboxes. We're talking about this organic kind of thing that we have to enter into with God. And that makes it a little bit more challenging. But what John's point is going to be throughout the letter is that if you have this authentic dependence, be it clumsy and sometimes all too human, but an authentic and, and, and honest, earnest desiring of God, seeking of God, moving toward the person of God in your life, you will more and more begin to sound like who he is, look like who he is, love like who he is. You're going to start to sound and act and function more like Jesus. Because the closer you draw into relationship with him, the more his heart is overlaid in your heart, and you can't help but spill that out. And in the inverse, he's kind of saying, but if you don't act and look and sound like Jesus, even if you do claim Jesus, you may not be nearly as close to Jesus as you assume, because proximity will birth this imitation. And if there isn't proximity, there isn't going to be imitation. And so John's trying to spell this out, and he's using some, again, very rhetoric-based language, but it's language to get our attention. So he's like, hey, God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. Therefore, verse 6, we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing—highlight that word—practicing the truth. Now, now, I want to clear some stuff up here really quick because one of the things I've known over the course of my Christian life is that people approach 1 John in different ways. And I want to just be open that there's others that are going to approach it different than I am. So I'm confessing there's different voices out there because it's a difficult book. In fact, when I told Scott I was going to do 1 John, he read through it and he goes, man, I read 1 John. It's very confusing, not a fan, <laughs> you know, because it's a tough book to understand sometimes, especially what John is getting at in these early passages. But, but see, what I, what I think he's dealing with here is um, it's not that we're supposed to read this and, and go, 1 John is proof whether I'm saved or not saved. There's a piece of that concept in there a little bit, but, but I, I think he's way more wrapped up in the practical expression of Christianity than in what we would call the positional ideas of Christianity. Right? What, where this plays out in, in, a, in a functional way versus trying to talk about high theology and these positional truths in Christ. I think he's practical. I really do. And so even when he says this, right? We are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but we are walking in darkness and we are not practicing the truth. Notice he puts himself in that category too. We. See, one of the things that happens sometimes, people go, oh, he's writing to his opponents. Well, then why does he say We. He would say, they do this. They are in lies. They don't practice the truth. They are in darkness. But he says we, because I think he's being practical with our lives. We all have moments. I'm just telling you, I have moments where I'm not walking in the truth. I'm kind of walking in darkness. 
as a Christian, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, there are moments where there is this me-centeredness, which I think much of what John is going to be writing about is that walking in the truth is about walking in love, walking in selflessness, walking in life in a way that's for the good of the other near me. And when it's about me, it's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of light. It's dark. It's the opposite of truth. It's error. And so this is where I think he's, again, being really, really practical. And in this practical idea, what he's talking about is us then practicing the truth. And I want to take us back to what John seems to mean by truth. Does he mean uh, theological data points that are meant to be affirmed? Is he talking about dogmatic prepositions that are crafted to form a certain kind of theological conclusion? Well, actually, I think he's told us in his gospel, which his epistle is born out of his gospel, he's like, truth, it's a person. Truth is Jesus. So when we see this word practicing, right, it's a function, it's an action, he's trying to get us this idea of like, what I want you to do is to practice Jesus. He's the truth. You're supposed to practice truth. So practice Jesus. Live like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Approach the world like Jesus. Analyze the way Jesus did life and mimic the life you see in Jesus. That's the idea. And when we're not practicing life like Jesus, then we're walking in spiritual darkness. And again, confessing myself, there are days that I try to do Jesus well. I want to think like him and love like him and act like him. And there's other times where I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing. Right? I'm not going to be thinking like him. I'm going to think like me. I'm not going to respond like him. I'm going to respond like me. Right? It's on the 405. Lots of me, not a lot of Jesus, you know? Like, those are the things. When somebody's jerky to me or mean to me or rude to me, and Jesus would be like, well, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, Matt. Love your enemy. And I'm like, no, but they're a dork, Jesus. You didn't mean them. He's like, well, then you're walking in darkness. You're not bringing light to the world. You're bringing the same old junk to the world when you're not thinking and living and acting like me. All right? See, I bring this up because I think it's really easy for us sometimes to read the Bible in our kind of religious lens and say it's all about morals versus the absence of morals. Or it's all about maybe uh, lawbreakers versus law keepers. It's all about maybe you would say like the liberal versus the conservative or the evangelical versus the deconstructed. And I think John's trying to dismantle all of that and say here's the bottom line. You either have this life of Jesus and it flows through you, which is where the sweet spot is, or we're choosing to not practice Jesus, not let him flow through our lives. And you can do that for religious reasons as much as irreligious reasons. I mean, we all have met people that in the name of Christ do not show the disposition of Christ. The history of the church is replete with people in the name of Jesus doing very un-Jesus-like things. And, and, and so just, again, John and his practicality, I think, is trying to distill down to that and say, I, I, I want us to wrestle with, as believers, as followers of Jesus, how we sometimes live in the light and we sometimes live in the darkness, we sometimes mimic Jesus and we sometimes just do our own thing and we need to get on track with his thing. See, I bring this up because there's another element I want to be clear about when it comes to 1 John, and that is I don't believe he wants us reading this so we're all sitting around questioning our salvation. 
which is another thing that gets used sometimes with First John. We're like, oh, this is the tool to see if we're truly saved. I don't think that's quite the angle John's coming from. Not that that can't happen, not that that shouldn't happen, I'm not saying that, but when we think about his motivations, when he tells us, here's why I'm writing to you, he tells us twice in his letter his motive. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I'm writing so that you can share in my joy. So his motive is our joy. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you so you can fear. I'm writing to you so you can worry if you're saved. I'm writing to you so you can doubt. No, he says, I'm writing for your joy. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you so that you will know you have eternal life. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you so you will fear that you don't, that you'll worry that you don't. No, he wants our confidence and conviction. He wants to assure us and give us ways that we can have assurance. And if I try to simplify this again and again, I know there's some people who are going to disagree and go, no, man, there should be a giant quiz about whether we're really saved or not. And, and I look and I go, no, I think it's meant to say, hey, here's how we have assurance. We have assurance if, in part, we just simply want to be more like Jesus. Like, to have that as your heart is quite assuring. Because there's plenty of people who go, no, I don't want to be like Jesus. His idea of turning the other cheek is dumb. His idea of not judging lest you be judged, dealing with my own plank before I deal with the person, that's stupid. If I'm sued, I'm not giving double. I'm keeping and going after them. There's all kinds of stuff that Jesus says that if you go, I don't want his message, I don't want his ethos, I don't want his motivations, man, then again, there's no assurance for you in that. If that's your attitude about Jesus. That's a, that's a bad space to be in. But assurance is, no, I'm trying to be like Jesus in complete, Clumsily, I'm still trying. And then, if you start acting like Jesus, and then from that you're like, man, life is fuller. Life is better with him when I do it this way. My, my joy is deeper. It's not just kind of superficial happy, but it's a deeper joy when I do it his way. I find there's a grounding. John's like, yes, that's the assurance I want you to have because I'm writing so you have joy. I'm writing so you know you have life. I love this. It's important. Now, I think part of the challenge that John is wrestling with and his opponents is that, that his opponents have distilled down the Christian life into something much more uh, positional than practical, right? And, and, and it seems that where their core is, is they're like, uh, they deny that Jesus was quite human. They're way more about Jesus was divine. But in that divinity, Jesus came and dealt with our sin so much that our sins are completely gone. And they go a step further and say, and because my sins are completely gone because of what Jesus has done, I don't sin. I have no sin. I cannot sin. Anything I do isn't really sin because it's all paid for in Christ. He's already dealt with it. I'm expunged. And so what I do, what my practice is, is immaterial because my position is solid in him. I'm sinless. That seems to be part of their problem. And John's trying to go, right, but listen, being saved is cool, but save leads to a different kind of life. Being truly just enamored by the person of Christ and rescued by his life, his life comes through you, and it changes your life, and you go live this thing out. John's like, that's where it's at, right? That a life with him means a life transformed by him. Thus, verse 7 if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us, cleanses us from all our sin. Now, there's a number of things that he's saying right there. Notice that he's like, hey, man, if you're living in the light, it's going to create, what, healthy community. We have fellowship with one another. 
And then in this, there's this relationship of Jesus and his blood. But all of this is kind of interconnected. In part, remember what we looked at last week? There was a diagram, and I talked about our fellowship is about oneness, but also about witness, right? And kind of our community in the church is meant to be a robust place of life and love and joy so we can go into the world and show the same thing, and so they're tethered. But the only way we're going to do this effectively is if we are then empowered. So the fellowship we have with God empowers us to be a community that goes and reaches the community around us. It's a diagram and a design of dependence and transformation and hope. I believe that's all in John's framework as he's thinking this through. And so this is why he's making this big deal about life and light and truth and practice and walking. It's, it's function again. More than position, it's function for him. Now, what drives this is this idea of the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. Now, with this, hard stop in the message for a minute, right? We need to go down a rabbit hole for a second. And by a second, I mean a few minutes, all right? So, because honestly, um, in the modern world, when that phrase is said, uh, for the outsider, it's a weird phrase. The blood of Jesus cleanses. Right? For us, it's been in the church for a while. We appreciate this language. We kind of understand it generically. Generally, we know what it's getting at. But for the outsider, they're like, so let me get this straight. You killed animals for a long time until you had a human sacrifice to take care of it. Like a human sacrifice is the only way God can deal with our problems. And so that seems weird. And then I was just reading something from somebody this week. They're like, Blood as a cleansing agent is super strange. Nobody's going to be like, I need to wash my whites, and so I'm going to put in a cup of blood to my whites, and I'm going to wash it, and they're going to come out even more bright. They're going to come out very pink, right? So it seems strange. And all of this seems really archaic, like, man, we used to do all kinds of sacrifices back in the day, but is that really for the modern mind? Well, here's the thing. We need to get under the image to the symbol. And if you can get under the image to the symbol, then you can see the beauty of what is captured in the symbol. So, here is your uh, seminary lesson for the day. John, as a good Jewish boy, comes out of a good Jewish world, reads a good Jewish Bible, and his blog of 1 John is rooted in his Gospel of John, both of which are incredibly rooted in the Old Testament. So you know all the I am statements he makes, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the living water. All of those are deeply connected to Old Testament ideas of festivals and rituals and things of that nature. So John is very Old Testament oriented. And so this is a statement deeply Old Testament oriented. So in the Old Testament, the first five works we call the law, right? And at the middle of the law is the third work, the book of Leviticus. And at the very middle of the book of Leviticus, there is this blood sacrifice element that we have to understand, understand what John's getting at, and we have to understand the architecture going on around it to really get this. So number two in your notes, Jesus, the Jesus of life in Leviticus is really what we're talking about. We have to understand that theme to understand what on earth John is talking about when it comes to blood, right? And this has everything to do with fellowship and cleansing and holiness and how blood plays a role in all of that. Now, a couple of years ago, we actually did a study in Leviticus, and if you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and watch it. Don't listen, watch, because there's a lot of visual cues in there to give us a sense of this, but here's the ultimate forest of Leviticus. 150 times, it brings up holiness, this word holy or holiness or being a holy people. 
And it just means uncommon, set apart, consecrated. The problem is, it was a word that was in existence before the Bible was, before the Israelites were going out of Egypt. Other nations, other cultures use the same word. And so when you use the word, you have to go, uncommon to what? Right? You're being other than the norm, so what was the norm to be other than? So that's part of what you have to wrestle with, with what is meant by holy. What God means for that nation to be uncommon is different than all the surrounding nations that considered their rituals, quote, holy too. There's a difference. The next thing in Leviticus is you will see laws, lots of laws, 247 different laws. And some of them are strange, like don't eat a bat. I'm like, don't want to eat a bat. I don't need a law for that. Or don't boil a goat in its own mother's milk. I'm like, I don't want to put in the time to squeeze that much milk out of a mother to boil its baby in. Why would I do that? Well, that had meaning to their culture that we don't fully understand. But then there's other laws in there, like be fair in the marketplace, uh, be faithful in your family dynamics, um, don't transmit communicable disease and everything else. And when you look at all of those laws and you understand their dynamic and how they're playing in Leviticus, basically they are all ways to apply love. They're all applications of love as a way of life for fellowship and community. That's the heart of Leviticus. Right? So all that stuff, all of those different little trees of details is like the training wheels where God's like, okay, I want you to be uncommon. Well, what does that mean? Well, I want you to love. Well, what does that mean? Don't do these things and do those things. That's how you love your community. That's how you create a healthy space. And so at the center of Leviticus is this little section. And in the section, we see the heart of God for Leviticus. And it's a part of the greatest commandment. So remember Jesus is quizzed on this? Hey, Rabbi, what's the most important stuff to God? And he does a mashup. He says, love God. He pulls out from Deuteronomy. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. He pulls that from Leviticus. In fact, we see it twice. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. And then later in verse 33, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in the land. Treat them like a native-born Israelite and love them as you love yourself. And so again, just keep all the perspective in mind. Here's the law. At the center of the law is Leviticus. At the center of Leviticus, there's these two commands. Love the insider. Love the outsider. Love the believer. Love the disbeliever. Love the person that's on track with you. Love the person that's not at all on track with you. This whole theme of Leviticus is about loving your neighbor. And all those laws are ways that you can do that effectively because that is what holiness really looks like. It's the theme to accomplish this task. And so when we say, well, what does it mean to be uncommon? I think what God is getting at in Leviticus is you want to be really different as a nation if you want to be divided and stand divided. Here's what everybody else doesn't do. They don't go out of their way to form healthy, thriving community rooted in love. But holiness, uncommonness, is to love in mercy and love and true justness. Equality, equity, caring for those around you, not just caring for yourself, going out of your way to make sure that all of the community is healthy, not just your little enclave of the community is healthy. Whether they're insiders or outsiders, you're making that investment. That is what it means to be holy. That is how that nation was going to be standing apart as different, divided, so eventually they could bless the other nations. That's the core of Leviticus. Now with this, we are all too human. It is a lofty standard to be a healthy community. And what happens when you fail in that standard? Well, the Bible would call it sin. Leviticus would call it sin. 
And here's where I want to be clear, because I think this is where John's going to take us as we go through his letter. Uh, Sin for John and sin for Leviticus, you ready? Is not loving your neighbor or your God well. That's the sin. So if I sin against my wife, at the core, it's a lack of love. If I sin against God, at the core, it's a lack of love. And so at the center of Leviticus, then God has a solution for our problem of a lack of love, and it is called the Day of Atonement. That's at the absolute center of Leviticus now. Now, here's the cool thing about that word atonement. What's it mean? at one So John's theme is fellowship. God's focus for Israel is fellowship and community. The Day of Atonement is to restore the at one that gets lost every year. And it gets lost every year because we get selfish, we get self-interested, we take advantage of one another. We're not dwelling in love to God or to neighbor. And so you need this event every year to restore, reignite reunion and fellowship in the community, both to God and to one another. And you do this with these two goats. One goat is the scapegoat, where you take the, the offenses of the people, the absence of love, the presence of sin, and you send it on that goat, and he goes out into the wilderness to do some really wild things when you read the story. But he just basically goes away. And then you get this other goat, and it is given as a gift where its blood is then spilled or given in this context of a sacrifice. Here's what's really important about the blood of the goat. All right? We tend to go, oh, so it dies. Because we're very Western, and we're looking at this, and we're not catching the symbolism. We just go, an animal dies, and its blood is spilled. But in their culture— they're looking at that event, and they're not looking at it as death as much as they're looking at it as life, which seems strange to us. But the idea of the blood is this idea of life extending from one to another. It's the impartment of life one to another. I didn't say it. God says it in Leviticus chapter 17. He says, the life of the body is in the blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. So it's not just that the goat gives its life for you, but the idea is this goat gives its life to you. Its life essence is imparted to you. It's like a transfusion. Its life goes into your lives as a community of faith now. That's the idea of the symbolism that underlies this whole thing. So the symbol is in part about purification, but it's also about empowerment. It's about also granting that which has been sacrificed throughout the year. So as we have sought to be a loving community, but we failed in being a loving community, at the end of every year, we do this thing, our sins are expunged, but also its life is given to us, so we are renewed for new life in the community for the next year. That's your deepest symbol of the Day of Atonement, related to loving your neighbor, related to being holy in an uncommon kind of culture for the rest of the cultures. That all foreshadows a different gift given to impart life to the world. This time, John in his gospel says it's a lamb of God, not a goat, but a lamb of God. And this lamb of God is going to come, and in his blood, he is going to bring deeper purification, and with that, a more uh, transforming presence of life. He's going to impart his very life essence to you. And so when we think about what Jesus did, in one sense we go, he gave his life for you, and we go, yes. But more powerful to me is that he also gave his life to you. He gave his heart to you. 
He gave his motives to you. He gave his empowerment to you so that you would have his heart and you would love in uncommon ways and you would show the world an uncommon love that they can't contend with and it compels them to this deeper thing. I think that is what motivates John. I know that's what motivates me. And it's that heart that I think John is streaming toward. Therefore, he says in verse 7, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. When you put that back together, you realize fellowship is at the center of his idea. Living in the light means living like Jesus. Living in the truth means living like Jesus. And Jesus has made it possible for us to live in these ways. It's profound, right? This is what we have from him. In fact, if I took all this and just put it into bullet points, I wrote these down this week. He says, to live in the light is to practice the truth of holiness. And partly truth is sincerity, and Jesus is the truth, and so we're living in the light of Jesus. And then holiness is the practice of love displayed in mercy and justice toward the community and toward the fellowship. And this love is made possible because Jesus has given his life to empower us, because he's given it to us as well as for us. Like, all of this is the key. And so Jesus both models what we're supposed to do, and he makes possible a way for us to do it. I love it. Problem is... We don't always do it. The problem is what we have and what we do, there's a gulf between the two sometimes. We're growing, we're learning, we're trying, we're succeeding and failing. And so with this, John says, we all have to be honest about that. Unlike his opponents who think they're perfect and they have no problems, John's like, no, we gotta be honest about our problems. We're still trying to figure this out as we go. So it's number three in your notes. Living in the light, in part, means you admit that sometimes you live in the dark. Right? Even though he's been very black and white, we all are going to struggle with this. This is why he says, hey, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So again, the opponents are like, we don't sin, we have no sin, we cannot sin because Jesus has forgiven all of our sins, we have no problems, and John's like, but you're not loving. You're not like Jesus. In your position, you may have some positional ideas that are accurate, but in your practice, they don't line up with your position, and we need to change all of that, which is why he isn't dealing with technical language. He deals with, again, functional language, living, practicing, fellowshipping, displaying. I think in short, the way I would say this is John is thinking about a relational framework again, right? He's thinking about our relationship to God and our relationship to one another, it should be driven by our position in Christ, but we're still trying to catch up with the practice. What I think is cool, though, for John, is he goes, man, we can be honest about that, though. And there's a solution for that. And we can seek forgiveness when I failed in my relationship with God and my relationship with others because Jesus has made that possible to restore me, both to cleanse me and to empower me to do it right this next time. Like, it's all available and why this is encouraging to him is he's thinking back to that passage in Leviticus, right? So it used to be uh, we had to wait a whole year until we had the Day of Atonement. And we have to spend money and time, and if I did something really bad, I have to leave the camp so I don't have community, I don't have fellowship because I'm impure until I'm made pure again. And There's all this ritual involved and everything else. He says, but man, here's the good news. Jesus has covered that base for us now. Jesus has done something more profound. He is, in fact, the one that makes us right with God, and he is the one that infuses us with life. And therefore, he says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness, which is literally the word injustice. So he's just to deal with our injustice. So when we're not functioning as a proper community, when I as an individual am not loving you all or others like Jesus, I am choosing to kind of walk in the darkness at that moment and in that time. But I can realize and course correct and come back around and say, Jesus, forgive me. Now, when I do this, again, it's the last little bit here I want to emphasize. Um, a weird thing that's hard for us to realize is this positional versus practical. In the positional side of my relationship to Jesus, because of what he's done on the cross for me, as soon as I sin in any way, conscious, unconscious, active, passive, whatever it is, it's instantly forgiven in Christ, whether I acknowledge it or not. And the reason for this is because John says in his Greek language, in the kind of the present tense, it's like you're constantly cleansed all the time. It's like Jesus paid it for you. There's no condemnation for your actions, right? Positionally, you're good. But practically, you, you still got to interact in relationship to God. You have to interact with relationship to others. And this is where you still need to make things right. You still need to take ownership of what's happened because if you don't, it's going to soil that nature of community and fellowship and relationship that all of this is about. And yet, if you acknowledge it, you confess it, you see it, man, God is faithful. He's always cleansing you, but he also will cleanse the relational nature of the problem. And this will lead to abundant life, both for you and for others around you. Because there's a humility involved. There's an earnestness involved. And so this abundant life, he maps it out for you. He steps into it with you. He empowers it through you. And he faithfully forgives and restores us when we don't do a great job of this. And then he says, all right, let's go. Let's go live it now. It's not like you got to pay penance or anything. It just let's go live it now. Let's go do it right. Because Jesus has given that life for us. And see, what I love about this is it's so good in a punitive culture that wants to cancel over everything that we have this message of, oh, but this God loves to forgive. This God's eager to do it and to pick us up and to send us back into life again, right? There's no true sense of failure. There is, I learn from my mistakes, I learn from my sins, I make them right, and I move on, and I hopefully am more like Jesus for it. Because life is better with Jesus, and the more I live my life in him, the more he lives his life in me. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you are the source of life and you are the source of joy. And I pray that we're looking at this not because it's like now I'm trying to earn a thing from you, but rather I'm trying to embody a thing that you've earned for me. Like, that, that I'd be motivated by that. I'd be motivated by deep joy, deep abiding in you, deep passion for what you care about, a deep sense of loving community, insiders or outsiders, it doesn't matter. May it be about showing your love because you have loved us so recklessly. You loved your sinful neighbors of this planet and gave yourself for us so we could have your life. There may be some watching this morning or in this room where you don't follow Jesus and you're hearing all of this and you're like, let me get this straight. He came to take away my sins and to give me then life. I want that. If you want that, that's a prayer for you. We say, Jesus, thank you that you came and did this thing that has such deep reference for life. I confess my sin to you. I seek life from you. And he hears you and brings you in and transforms you and begins to grow you and make you new. If you made that your prayer, we would love to know. On our app, there's a tile you can tag and just say, I decided to follow Jesus today. Or on the screen, there should be a number that comes up after this. And you can simply text that number, say, I decided to follow Jesus. We'd love to know. 
for the rest of us, Jesus, help us to live this thing and to live it purely mobilized by your grace, not simply our grit, but by your grace, your life, and your joy in us. We thank you in your name. Amen.